scripture reading this evening is going to be from Revelation 3, verses 1 through 6. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have found your deeds and finished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you will have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of the person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of God. If you've been with us, we've been working our way through the book of Revelation. As we get to this book, we see here that Jesus has this gift of a wake-up call. I've had a series of wake-up calls throughout my life. I can remember one in particular. Uh, My wife and I bought a house, a little small, really small house in College Hill. And I remember moving into this house, and it wasn't long after living there uh, that we had this terrible rain. And after it rained, I mean, it rained for three, or, I mean, I feel like three days straight, but it was just constant rain. And one day it rained so bad, we began to see a leak in our roof, just a steady drip onto our living room floor. And so not only was it leaking there, we had a bucket to catch the water, but all of, we had just moved, by the way, so a ton of our boxes like, uh, were downstairs in the basement, which if you know College Hill, some of those basements aren't the best for rain. And so we had moisture coming up, so I'm carrying these paper boxes upstairs, and stuff's falling out of it. And man, it was a wake-up call for us to get things in order. Oftentimes, wake-up calls are difficult, right? We we don't like them. Whether it's going to the doctor and and hearing from the doctor that something's wrong and you need to change your diet or your lifestyle, or or maybe it's... uh, you know, you're saving money to buy that, that dream house, that lake house that you want to buy someday, and it's 2008, and you wake up the next morning, and you've lost 50% of your savings because of what's happening with the stock market. Who knows what those wake-up calls might be in our lives, but these things happen, and, and though they look scary or uh, maybe negative on the, on, the, on the surface, oftentimes these are actually what bring us back onto the path we were called to. They force us to actually do something about the issues that we had to begin with. There's, an, there's this idea, uh, and it's called Freytag's Pyramid. I don't know if you've ever heard of this. Could you go to that slide for me, Isaac? I'm getting this turned on here. Oh, there it is. Here we go. Freytag's Pyramid. It, it's, a, it's a device that uh, sort of demonstrates what happens in, in good stories. If you've ever been to a I was, a, I was a writing major in college. If you've ever been to a writing class or you've studied film or you've studied story, this is a common arc that you will see in a lot of the most famous movies and books and stories. It begins with exposition and then there's this moment called an inciting incident, okay? This is the moment where something happens 
Maybe a character is for the hero of the story is forced to do something, or maybe they choose to do something, but something happens that forces them to change or forces them to do something difficult in order to get to what they actually want. Uh, an example of this would be, for example, um, you have the Hunger Games, right? You've got uh, Primrose uh, Everdeen is called out to be in the games, who's the younger sister of Katniss. Katniss sees this, and what is her famous line? She says, I volunteer as tribute, right? She sacrificially enters into the games on behalf of her sister. This moment is towards the beginning of the film, but it's the inciting incident that sort of gets the story moving. In Star Wars, you've got Luke uh, who stumbles up, uh, upon a message from Leia embedded in R2. It says, help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You're my only hope. Again, that's the beginning of this, this, this conflict that is brought into a story that ends up making the story worth watching. This is what's happening in Sardis. This is an inciting incident. Because as we're going to see, historically, Sardis has a very interesting past. And it's going to have an even more interesting future. And so we read this letter, and Jesus is pretty clear. He says, you have a reputation of being alive, but you're actually dead. These are hard words. Now, if you're looking to buy a house and talk to a realtor, they often will say to you, um, what matters most, you may have your, found your dream home, but if you don't find out a good location, right, it's location, location, location. That's what's most important. And when we're studying the Bible, one of the things that I think we need to continually go back to is context, context, context. We have to understand the context because though this letter is for us, it was actually written to someone else. And so we're going to take a minute to, to unpack this a little bit. Um, I want to look at uh, the specific words that he's using here because it's going to help us understand what was going on in the church of Sardis. So if you give me just a minute, I'm going to, maybe a little bit more than a minute, I'm going to nerd out on some history here, but I think it's going to help set the stage for what's going on. So a Greek historian is where we get a lot of this information. Herodotus was his name. And he, we, this happens in the first century. We have to actually have to go back to 6th century BC to understand what is going on. You see, Sardis as a region uh, at the time in, in, in the first century was, uh, uh, or sorry, back in the 6th century BC was uh, the Lydian Empire, okay, was who sort of had this, uh, this space. They're very wealthy, very successful. They had a king named Croesus, okay, who, um, who was sort of in charge during this time. And one of the things you have to understand, too, is that there was this river that was flowing that had literal gold in it. And so this was, you know, talk about location, right? This is prime real estate. They've got this place where there is a river and there is gold that can be mined. And so Croesus' father actually is the one who began mining this. And originally, it was actually the stuff they found was like, it was like gold and silver combined, okay? But then when the sort of the throne was passed to Croesus, he was able to mine the purest form of gold and actually was the first person to take that gold and put it into mint, meaning that it was actually used as coins that would circulate throughout the land, I've actually got a picture of it here. This is what those coins would look like. Okay, because there was such a massive reservoir of this gold, they were able to create a coin that went just beyond Sardis. It went beyond just their location, but it was the, it was the largest and the first pure gold coin to exist in that part of the world. So understand this king became very rich. We're talking like 
Bill Gates, Elon Musk type rich for context, right? This guy was one of the richest people on the planet. And his gold was circulating throughout the empire. And um, he's distributing these pure gold coins. And throughout history, this was the standard. This was the gold standard, which was a really big deal. Now, I want to show you a picture here. This is the, uh, where the Acropolis was. And you can see that mountain behind it. This is, this is where this, this city was built. And it was built up on top of the mountain, which had the optimal protection against any enemy. For one, you're higher than everyone else. You can see your enemy coming. Number two, um, in order to reach the top where the citadel was, you had to not only scale the mountains, okay, which is not easy, but then you would have to uh, overcome these walls. Now, obviously, they've been destroyed, but imagine them in their full splendor, and it would not be an easy task. So King Croesus, right, this wealthy guy, this king, is up here on this mountain. He's got everything he could ever want. But they had one blind spot, and we're going to look at that in a minute. I'll tell you the quick story is that in 54, 546 B.C., um, Cyrus and the Persians came and laid siege to it within, like, 14 days, okay? And we actually read about this in Ezra chapter 1, if you want to go back and study that. Um, the, the story is told in Ezra chapters 1 through 6. Um, and actually, uh, when Jesus is mentioning in his letter uh, that he's going to come like a thief in the night, right? This is actually a reference that they would have understand because this is exactly how their city fell. And we'll look at that in a bit. So if you think back to when Jesus was walking the earth, okay? Um, there was this great earthquake that rocked the area that included Sardis. It destroyed the neighboring Philadelphia, which is the church we'll cover next week. And Sardis was such an important city at the time that the emperor, who was Tiberius at the time, um, would go and he would invest, for a comparison, probably billions of dollars to rebuild that city because of how important that city was. So imagine the city gets destroyed. The emperor says, look, this city is so important this isn't like Pergamum, which is just a garrison city. This isn't like Smyrna. No, this is the most important city. We're going to rebuild it. And not only rebuild it, but they let the people live there for five years tax-free. Okay, I know we got some stimulus money, which is kind of nice, but imagine five years, no taxes. Okay, that's a pretty good gig. So here we go. We got Sardis, super important city, very wealthy city, affluent so much that the emperor rebuilt it. They were a big exporter of textiles, of wool. Interestingly enough, it was famous for producing the most worn garment all throughout the Greco-Roman world. It was called the Hamadian. Right? This was a really common worn garment. And so you see all this. You see a people uh, in the city who are wealthy. They had security. They had just about everything they could ever want. And we read this letter and it's not like the other letters. If you've noticed, there were a lot of overlapping themes in the first few churches, but this church doesn't even mention sexual immorality. This church doesn't uh, uh, mention any kind of heresy, right? There's no, no type of bad doctrine that's mentioned being taught. Satan doesn't live here. That's a good thing. Um, so there's all these things, and you ask, well, what's the problem? Apparently, they didn't have a problem, and that's the very problem in and of itself, right? Essentially, they were dead inside. 
a quote by Scott Daniels in his book on Revelation. He says, the church in Sardis was not alive enough to have enemies or confront heresy. It had simply become the model of non-offensive faith. So let's begin by looking at this critique, because this is important for us to understand what's going on. Jesus says, I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. In my experience, sometimes I feel like the hardest people to reach are the people who are the most religious, the ones who think they have it all put together. And oftentimes, um, there's a contentment to sort of play church, to go through the motions, to put on the nice suit, to show up, and to play the part when in reality, they're missing the real power of Jesus in their life. And I've seen this play out many times in my life. In fact, Matthew 23, Jesus confronts this very idea. In Matthew 23, uh, he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and the Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. So having a reputation of being alive, but being spiritually dead on the inside, is something that I think all of us need to confront in the same way that Jesus is confronting this in this very moment. We often live lives of what we would call projection, meaning we, our faith exists as a means to gain something else. We want other people to see us for what we believe, to see the way we live, and sort of think, oh, that person really has it figured out. But oftentimes when we do that, there is a dissonance inside of us because there is a spiritual apathy and deadness. I think there are a few reasons uh, why we do this, a few ways in, in which and how we do it. Uh, one, I think life by who we know, okay? We see someone who we admire in the faith. We read their books. We, we, we watch their sermons. We sort of uh, maybe attend their church or we become a part of an, have a group identity in, in a certain aspect of that community, right? If we do the right things, we go to the right uh, conferences and right services and programs, then yeah, we're associated with that person and we sort of earn a good reputation. Another I think the way we do this is life through programs. Okay, Eastminster's really good at this. We have lots of programming. Um, if this is a place I can go, then maybe I will be a part of this group and I will be able to gain that energy. A great quote by uh, Warren Wearsby says, all of the church's man-made programs can never bring life any more than a circus can resurrect a corpse. That one stings a little bit, especially for a church of ours, like ours. We love our programs. And it's not to say that programming is in itself bad, but I do think when that is becomes the way in which we think we find life in Christ, I think we miss the point that only the power of God can indeed resurrect people from death to life. And so my point in saying these things is that we can associate with the right people, we can attend the right services, we can attend the right church, we can go to all the programs in the world and yet still be dead in our heart. Because that's what Jesus, in a sense, is confronting in Sardis. If you were to compare Sardis to the other churches, you could say Sardis is kind of like the megachurch, right? The church that, that did everything right, that had all the programming in the world, that had sort of the, the money to be able to do this grand vision. And yet, there are people there 
who are spiritually dead inside. A.W. Tozer writes, if the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from the church today, 95% of what we do would go on and no one would know the difference. If the Holy Spirit had been withdrawn from the New Testament church, 95% of what they did would stop and everybody would know the difference. I think that's a challenging word for our church. I think it's a challenging word for the church today where oftentimes our reliance comes on our strategies, right? The ways we try to win people. And oftentimes we do that at the expense of sitting at the feet of Jesus and asking the spirit, where are you at work and how can we join? So Jesus steps in with the wake up call. He says, wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. Jesus gives us three things here. The first thing he gives us is that call to wake up. They are asleep. I I have to ask the question, what puts us to sleep? What are the things, because obviously this isn't literal physical sleep. This is a metaphor that he's using. Um, What are the things in our life that put us to sleep? I thought of a few things. I think Western culture does a pretty good job of this. We're very distracted people. Um, We have notifications on our phones going up, buzzing in our pocket all the time. Uh, We have all kinds of activities to attend. We have uh, access to all the information in the world at our fingertips. And it can become very easy to get distracted. One of the tasks I had for one of my seminary courses on worship was to do 30 straight days of praying, uh, prayers of examine, which is a, a, a moment when you stop, you put away your phone, you get quiet, and you ask difficult questions, and you pray prayers to really search your heart and allow the Holy Spirit to search your heart. If you're with us during the Way series, this is one of the practices that we did together. Um, and I remember trying to do this for 30 straight days, and I found it increasingly difficult for a few reasons. One, I found that in my office is kind of a hub where people like to hang out. So people would come by and be, it'd be distracting, or I'd see someone walk in. Um, I'd find my computer bu- like, give me little, little uh, notifications or my phone ringing. And so I actually had to leave my phone in my office and go up to the balcony where I knew I'd be alone and simply take about five minutes to let my brain simply quiet so I could actually hear myself think for a moment. I think sometimes... We have to be intentional to find those spaces, to find those moments, because otherwise the distraction and the chaos of everyday life lulls us to sleep in a spiritual sense. We miss out. We lack the awareness of where God is moving because we're so distracted and so busy and we never stop. The second warning from Jesus, the thing that he calls us to, is to strengthen what remains. Strengthen what remains. We need to value consistency over intensity. Um, My buddy and I, we used to live, this is before everything got shut down, but we lifted for like six months pretty consistently in his garage. And the guy had crazy stuff. We'd be flipping tires and doing all kinds of hard lifting moves like hang cleans and all sorts of stuff. And I remember we had done this for about six months and I'm feeling strong, he's feeling strong. And his buddy wants to come and work out with us. And we're like, great. Well, this guy shows up 300 pounds, was a former Division I Oklahoma Sooner football player. The guy is huge, 
Okay, so I'm like, this guy, feels, I feel like he could, li- he could hang clean me, right? And I remember I get up there and I do my five hand cleans, which for me is enough. And I put down the weights and this guy gets up there and he is slinging this thing like it's bamboo. He's just like, wah, two, 27, 28. And he's just going on and on. And we're just sitting there amazed at how strong this guy is. Fast forward to the next morning and my friend told me he got a phone call. And he said his friend who came and lifted with us could not get out of bed. He was so sore. In fact, he said he had to go see his doctor because he thought he hurt something. The doctor's like, no, you just haven't lifted like that since you were in college. And so I think one of the things illustrated here is, you know, when you, factor, when you push everything into one intense workout, you're actually not going to get the benefit as if you were going to be patient and consistent over a long period of time. And I think sometimes when we talk, think about our spiritual life, it operates in a similar plane. We need to value consistency in the little things over sort of this intensity where we think we've got to get it all figured out in one moment. It's the little things. There's power in consistency. We talked about this a lot in the Way series. As a reminder, it's the daily things, the reading of scripture, the prayer, the time we spend, the the weekly practice of Sabbath the daily Bible reading plan, all the different practices that we went through in the Way series, the the monthly uh, taking the Eucharist together in community. It's the everyday little things that build in our spiritual life that keep us from falling asleep. This is like, in a way, it's like entering kindling into before starting a fire, right? You, you start by putting the kindling in, which eventually grows into a flame. And that is how we strengthen what already remains. Number three, Jesus calls us to remember. Um, this is a bit embarrassing, but I recently was going through my notes in my phone. Um, I was looking for a, a locker combination, funny enough. But I stumbled across some old uh, journaling I did uh, before Betsy and I got married. And I remember reading some of my just emotional journals where I was probably in the process of falling in love. Now, when I read them now, it's kind of like, who was this guy? Like, I was just so emotional, and I was up and down, and I was too afraid to ask her out, so I was just this hot mess, right? And I remember reading it, and it actually did something in me, though. It reminded me, and and in a moment, I remember what it was like to, like, fall in love, which is a crazy, exciting, and fun season of anyone's life. And so I have these emotions. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's, I remember this. I remember these moments. And so I went home, and I'm like, my wife's love language is acts of service. Right? So I'm like, I made dinner. I cleaned the dishes. I did all these things because when you experience and you remember, right, it stirs your emotions and leads to action. And so, so many times in the Bible, God calls us to remember, to remember the love you had at first as we learned from another church, right? We remember these things because it moves us. Jesus calls us to remember because it affects our will. In 1 Timothy, Paul is writing to Timothy. He says, Timothy, my son, I am giving you this command in keeping with the prophecies once made about you so that recalling them, you may fight the battle well, holding on to the faith and in good conscience which some of us have rejected and so have suffered shipwreck in regard to our faith. Timothy is struggling. He's going through all kinds of issues in his church. And Paul says, recall the prophecies. Remember what 
we said about you. Remember how God spoke to you. Um, we've been meeting with a, a group of young adults uh, weekly. And I remember a few weeks back we finished up, but we were studying the book of Titus together. And during one of our meetings, I asked the question to the group. I said, can you remember, there's that section towards the end that talks about God's power. And I said, can you remember you saw a time where God's power was evident in your life or in someone's life? And at first it was kind of quiet. Nobody really spoke or said anything. And one person shared about a really just small moment when God met them in a time of need. And that sort of became like a snowball. Another person shared a story, and another person shared a story. And by the end of the night, I feel like everyone shared a really profound moment where they saw God's power at work. And I remember driving home after that night being like, man, I'm encouraged. I'm encouraged by the fact that God is moving, even in small and little ways, but also in miraculous ways. There were stories of healing. There were stories of deliverance. And so often, I think we forget the moments where God moved powerfully in our life. We forget them. And when we remember them and we recall them and we share them, it is encourage, it's mutually encouraging to everyone involved. And so we're called to remember the ways in which God has moved among us. Strengthen what remains. Waken your soul and remember. Now, this letter takes a bit of a turn. We now have the warning that Jesus gives, which is pretty intense. He says, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. If you remember this city, um, it was pretty confident that they were going to be good in case anyone tried to attack them. It was on a hill. It was well guarded. But one day while they were sleeping, so in the middle of the night, uh, the Persian army climbed the cliffs. Okay, this is back in, in the 6th century BC. Right? They climbed the cliffs, and one of Cyrus's soldiers scaled the rock okay, in the face in the dead of night and found a lone guard on the bottleneck. And, and this lone guard was, was basically like there was like a hole, a real small hole where you could get in. This guard had fallen asleep. So what do they do? They walk up to the guard. They quickly, quietly kill him, and they move him away. It's funny enough, the guard was sleeping. This passage is about wake up. So they kill him, and then they signal the rest of the army, and the rest of the army sneaks into the, the entire uh, uh, space and ends up destroying Sardis that very night. It was a stealth mission that took down the city. Okay, so this is 549 BC, 546, 549, around that time. What's interesting is that after this city fell, it wasn't the first time this happened, or it wasn't the last time this happens, Okay. This actually happens again in 2014 BC, falling to Antichus the Great, right? So multiple times, this city has fallen, right, and has been taken siege. And so we have all this history leading up to this moment. And Jesus says these words. He says, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Do you see the reference there? See what Jesus is saying? He's saying, look, this is how you have fallen in the past. Like a thief in the night, you have been taken, and I will too. It then says, yet you, you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious like them be dressed in white. I will never blot out their name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that before the Father and his angels. 
Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So Jesus says, it's really a beautiful word. He says, uh, they will walk with me, right? Can you imagine walking with Jesus, asking questions, learning from him? It says he will be dressed in white. That is a symbol of a purity. There's no shame, right? There's this, there's this absolute pure, pureness of being in a white robe. And the one who is victorious will be like them, dressed in white. I will never blot out the name from the person in the book of life. This is interesting. Um, you see, there were worries about losing status among religious people. And what the Romans would do is when they were going to execute someone, they would blot out their name from the registry. Okay, so it was as if they never even existed in the first place. And so when Jesus says this, that I will write you in the book of life, he is saying, we're not going to be like the Romans. Right? We, you are forever going to be in this book. You will always be a part of this family. That was a select few people in Sardis who, who got that commendation. But for the rest, Jesus said, wake up. It's time to live again. I have a call on your life. Quit going through the motions. Quit playing church. Quit pretending because spiritually inside you are dead. And so in closing, I want to ask just what are maybe some of the implications for us? It's 2021, Wichita, Kansas. We, we attend Eastminster Church. What are some of the implications for us? I want to show you a graph. Uh-oh. There we go. Um, this is a graph. I actually re- originally read this graph in Christianity Today, um, but it demonstrates some of the trends. This is back in 2018, so this, is, this, was, this was a little while ago. But some of the trends in people's affiliation in religion. And you'll notice two staggering things on this graph. Okay, the mainline denominations, if you'll notice, have been in, in, in very like steep decline since the 70s. Okay, and this trend has seen moments of revival, but then again, back down on a steep, steep decline. The other interesting thing to note is the nuns or the no religion, people who say they're not. Uh, they have no religious affiliation, has been on a steep incline, okay? This is a a kind of a scary wake-up call for the church. I think it's one of the ways I think we can wake up to the reality that around us there are many people who don't even affiliate with religion. And here's what's interesting. Um, In 2020, they did a study, the... the, uh, I'm going to forget the name. It was the Public Research Institute released a new study where they took a similar um, sample size and interviewed a bunch of people. And they actually saw those two trends, those who said they were, they were non-religious and mainline denominations, actually start to go on different trajectories. So interestingly enough, following a time when our country is in massive upheaval, when we have a global pandemic, when we're dealing with all kinds of strife, we're seeing people no longer affiliate as non-religious, or that trend at least changing, as well as seeing the trend of mainline denominations growing. That's a good sign. But it also signifies something, I think. I think it signifies that there is actually a trend of people who are longing for meaning, who are seeing the chaos of what it means to be alive right now in this world and are saying, I need something more because this isn't working. And there is an absolute uh, incredible opportunity for the church to wake up to the fact that there are those around us who need Jesus. One of my observations um, 
and I've seen other pastors make this observation, one of the the troubling things we see is post-pandemic church is that we're missing a lot of people who used to attend our churches. And this is sort of like across the board seems to be true for most big churches, that one-third of the people who used to attend prior to the shutdown are no longer attending church. A lot of people. There's another third of people um, who are sort of sparingly attending. Maybe they're still tithing. Maybe they show up once a month, but they're certainly not as devoted as they once were. And then there's a third of people who actually are more devoted and are, are more committed than ever before because they endured this thing together, right? They, they felt like when, when things got hard, when things shut down, we committed to this community and we stood by them to the end. And so my question that I've just been wrestling with is, I wonder if maybe the one-third of people who have left, perhaps they were sleeping in the first place, or they were spiritually dying, or maybe the moment where there was an off-ramp where it was no longer a, a social reason to attend church because you're supposed to stay home or watch on your TV or your iPad or whatever, they got out of the habit and they're like, great, this is my way out. I wonder if there is a bit of pruning that has been happening for many people who would consider themselves nominal Christians or Christians who attend church mostly to play a part. And so maybe God's doing something good. On the other hand, I think that there are a lot of people who are now desperately searching, who are seeking, and we have an incredible opportunity to wake up to that reality. I once heard a story about a pastor who the morning he was preaching, he looked out into his congregation and, and he said, hey, after, after um, we wrap up here, I just want you to know, tonight we're going to have a funeral. And he said, I'd like you to come back to the church at 7 o'clock and we're going to have a funeral and I need you all to be there. And people are like, what, who died? Like, you're not going to even tell us who passed away? And so they go home and everyone eventually comes back to the church and they all wear black and not really sure what to expect. They sit down and the pastor gets up, there's a casket on the stage and the pastor says, all right, It's time to take a moment to mourn. We're going to have a funeral. And I'd like to invite each of you one by one to come to the stage and take a look at the deceased. And so one by one, people get up, they walk forward, and they open the casket. And sure enough, at the bottom of the casket is a mirror. And the pastor made a very important point. That night, he called his people out for being spiritually dead. For us personally, so on a communal level, as I mentioned, I think we need to wake up to the reality around us. I think on a personal level, many of us need to hear the word from Jesus that we need to wake up spiritually. Maybe for you personally, you can identify places in your life where there's spiritual apathy, places where your faith is simply about going through the motions or showing up to church or doing a checklist, making sure you've got all your uh, Christian um, things you need to do in order. Perhaps it feels like maybe a little bit you're pretending. I would ask you to take a moment and to invite the Spirit to search your heart tonight. Where are the spaces, the corners of your heart where you feel like you are spiritually dead? I'd encourage you to start small in this exercise. So when you ask God to reveal those things, start small. Um, uh, one of the things that I've noticed, when, whenever there's a big project, like if our house is a mess 
and it feels so overwhelming that we feel like we can't get our house in order. Sometimes I think spiritually it feels that way too. Like we just like nothing's going right in our life. We don't even know where to begin. Sometimes it takes something as simple as making the bed, right? My wife always makes us make the bed. I never understand why. It's just going to you know, get unmade later. But there's something psychological about making the bed, right? When you make the bed, it's like, oh, we accomplished something. I feel like we can accomplish anything. And it's like a snowball effect. And one thing after another, and you've cleaned your entire house, right? I feel like sometimes we need to start small. Start with the things we can control, the little things we can do in our life to get back on track. It's uh, getting colder outside. It's like fireplace season. I love making fires in our house. It's one of the things my kids and I love to do. And oftentimes, starting a fire, you start with what? The kindling. It's one stick at a time. It's one leaf at a time. It's one whatever, and, and you're building up until eventually you light the flame. And at first, you can't really feel the warmth. But after those flames start to grow, and after the embers start to get created, it heats up the entire house. I think sometimes our approach to becoming spiritually alive again is to first take those small steps, beginning by asking the Lord to search our heart and to reveal to us the places where we are spiritually dead. So tonight, if that's you, if there are places in your heart, you want to invite the Spirit to start uh, uh, pointing out and pruning and moving you towards, I'm going to invite you to join me in prayer. And then we're going to have a time of communion together and we'll close out our service. If you would pray with me. Lord, I thank you for uh, the work you're doing in our church. I want to invite you tonight uh, to search our hearts, to reveal in us those moments, those spaces, those places where we have not, um, where we've grown complacent, where we've grown apathetic, where there is a deadness in us. And I pray that you would begin to make us uncomfortable. That you would move us to a place to where we're not content in our apathy, but instead, Lord, we begin to take steps towards becoming alive again. So, Spirit, we invite you into this space, we invite you into this place, and we confess uh, at this moment those times when we have, in fact, failed and been apathetic and times when we have been spiritually dead. Lord, we want to be alive again. Do that work in us. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen.